Luke chapter 12. Now, gentlemen, I know that it is uh, Father's Day, and I don't want you to think that I have particularly picked out this topic of hypocrisy just for us. Um, just happens to be what was on the schedule, and uh, let's face it, we're all hypocrites. You know, hi, I'm Randy Jenkins, and I'm a hypocrite. Okay, let's just, let's just face it. And it's not just dads, ladies. I don't want you to think that we're the only ones. Just simply by our, our desire to, to serve the Lord and, and, and the remnants of sin that remains within us, we will sometimes say things with our mouths and then go and do different things with our lives. And it doesn't matter whether we do those things in public or in secret. We still are hypocrites relative to that. So if you are able, would you stand with me and we'll read from Luke chapter 12. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would come upon us today. With your Holy Spirit, open our eyes and our ears and our hearts that we might see and we might hear, we might believe, and that we might live these things we find in your word, we ask in Christ's name, amen. Luke chapter 12, just three verses. Under these circumstances, after so many thousands of the multitude had gathered together that they were stepping on one another, he began saying to his disciples, first of all, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. There is nothing covered up that will not be revealed and hidden that will not be known. Accordingly, whatever you have said in the dark shall be heard in the light, and what you have whispered in the inner rooms shall be proclaimed upon the housetops. This is God's inspired word for us today, so please be seated. A lot of things in Scripture I don't like... (laughs) You know, just because it, it's so, it's hard. I mean, the things whispered in the inner room shall be proclaimed upon the housetops. What this is talking about is that everything will be known, okay? What you thought about so-and-so, what you whispered to somebody else that was, was not uh, edifying, was not pleasing, was derogatory, was selfish, those things will be known. That's hard to live with sometimes. Now, Charles Spurgeon in the late 1800s said this. Now, this is over 100 years ago. Just keep that in mind. This age is full of shams. Pretense never stood in so eminent a position as it does at the present hour. There be few, I fear, who love the naked truth. We can scarce endure it in our houses. You would scarcely trade with a man who absolutely stated it. If you walk through the streets of London, you might imagine that all the shops were built of marble and that all the doors were made of mahogany and woods of the rarest kinds. And yet you soon discover that there is scarce a piece of any of these precious fabrics to be found anywhere, but that in everything is grained and painted and varnished. I find no fault with this except as it is an outward type of an inward evil that, it, that exists." As it is in our streets, so it is everywhere. Graining, painting, and gilding are at an enormous premium. Counterfeit has at length attained to some eminence that it is with the utmost difficulty that you can detect it. Let me read that one for you again. And he's talking about London society in general at this point. Counterfeit 
has at length attained to such an eminence that it is with the utmost difficulty that you can detect it. What was the, uh, I'm supposed to know this, the, um, the town that was built in Russia so that when the Tsar went by, it was all facades? A Potemkin village, is that what it's called? So, oh, thank you, thank you. We've got one person who understands. Okay, a Potemkin village. It just, this looks good, okay? And that's what Spurgeon is saying. Man, this stuff looks good, but in reality, it is not. And the counterfeit has become so difficult to tell. The counterfeit so near approacheth to the genuine that the eye of wisdom itself needs to be enlightened before she can discern, discern the difference, especially is this the case in religious matters? There was once an age of intolerant bigotry when every man was weighed on the balance, and if he was not precisely up to the orthodox standard of the day, the fire devoured him. But in this age of charity, and of most proper charity, we are very apt to allow the counterfeit to pass, and to imagine that the outward show is really as beneficial as the inward reality. Ooh that the outward show is really as beneficial as the inward reality. If ever there was a time when it was needful to say, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy, it is now. And Spurgeon thought hypocrisy was bad 120 years ago. Okay, What about in our society? What would he think of our society today where so often style reigns over substance? Flowery speeches, more important than actions. Good intentions, more than real results. It's almost as if we think that the words I speak and, and the definition that I give to those words will determine my reality. Okay. So often you can have words that have been used in one way for so long and suddenly we want to redefine those words and use them to fit what I think is right and what I think is important. Just because I say peace does not mean that there will be peace, does it? You know what Chamberlain said with that piece of paper so many years ago? Just because I say blessing does not mean there is blessing. Talking about love is not the same as demonstrating love. Okay? I say to my wife, oh, honey, I love you, and then I wallop her. Oh, no, no. She, she says she loves me, and then she wallops me. That's the way it works. Okay? That is not love. Okay? That is not love. Seeing a danger and then saying, there is no danger, does not make the danger go away. Seeing my neighbor in need and say, Lord bless you, and keep going on my way, does not meet the need of my neighbor. Saying, I'm a, saying that I'm righteous and saying that I love God does not make up for a life that speaks differently. And that is the leaven of the Pharisees. Okay, now let's go back and look at the start of the Pharisees. The Pharisees really started as a good group. They, they were a good group. Now it says beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, but this is after the Pharisees kind of morphed into what we know them as in the first century. Now the leaven of the Pharisees basically kills in small doses. It doesn't take much. Just like putting leaven in bread, it only takes a little bit. You can leaven the entire loaf. Now, in the Old Testament, there were no Pharisees, okay? They came about in the intertestamental period, that period of some 400 years between uh, the last writing of the Old Testament and the coming of John the Baptist. Uh, they came along because the Jewish religion at that time was beginning to stray. 
it was beginning to move off of the teachings of the Old Testament. It was beginning to uh, become uh, synergistic with society around it. It was losing its distinction. So a group of guys got together and decided that they would begin to practice um, Judaism in its what they felt was its purest form, that they would become separate from society. And that's basically what the word Pharisee means. They wanted to come out from this synergistic religion and practice pure Judaism. Well, you know, how many things start real well and have great intentions but then deteriorate the more that man gets involved in it? And what happened over time was that they began to interject their own views on top of and intermix with the teachings of the Old Testament. So not only did they have the rules and the laws of the Old Testament, they added somewhere over 600 additional rules as well. And one of the rules that they added is found here in chapter 11, which we'll look at in just a moment. Now the Pharisees were, had some real good things about them, but they took those good things and they became corrupt. Let's look at Matthew chapter 23. There were four things in particular that the Pharisees were very good at, but they corrupted them. Okay, they corrupt them and turn them something into something that was very bad. I mean, ultimately, the Pharisees thought that they could be so holy that they could get to God on their own. So when Christ shows up, they had no need for him because of their own holiness, their own holiness. So the first century Pharisees on the surface gave every indication that they were solid believers, that they were the true faithful group. And the Pharisees had four great things in particular going for them that, as I said, they began to corrupt. Uh, Matthew 23, verse 15. And this is a group of woes. And now woes are, they come from the mouth of Jesus, and it's, it's like you're in big trouble. And, and he goes on and says this, woe to you, woe to you, woe to you. In verse uh, 15, He says, Woe to you, scribes and and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you travel about on sea and land to make one proselyte. And when he becomes one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as yourselves. The Pharisees were great evangelists. Okay? How many of you would travel, what, on sea and land to make one believer, to share the gospel with one person? I mean, there are plenty of illustrations uh, in, in great missionaries' lives who, who devoted their entire life and only had one convert to Christianity. Now, that convert went on to do great things, but they only had one, and, they, and devoted their entire life to that. Well, the Pharisees said they would go anywhere to make one convert, but then Jesus says what they do with that one convert he becomes one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as yourselves. So he marked the Pharisees as evangelists, but they were evangelists of hell. They were leading people away from the true God. It would be like, uh, you know, the Mormons or the Jehovah's Witness come to your door, to, you know, uh, on, on an afternoon. And, and they want to lead, they're, they're friendly, they want to lead you to what they believe is the truth, but they're leading you away from the gospel of Christ away from the gospel of Christ. Let's look at verse 23. Maybe things get better. Okay? The Pharisees were great evangelists. 
And they were also great tithers. Great tithers. Verse 23. Oh, another woe. Maybe they weren't such great tithers. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. For you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier provisions of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. But these are the things you should have done without neglecting the others. Now, uh, in, in our world, we don't really see the, the importance of this and, and, and what he's trying to illustrate here. But he lists the things of mint and dill and cumin. These are some of the smallest seeds you can find. And, and they were so particular and so meticulous about not missing anything about tithing that they would tithe off of this. It would be like if I went out... Uh, to my car and found a dime laying on the street I would immediately come back and I would pull out a penny and I would put in the offering plate and you know what I would make sure you saw me put the penny in the offering plate that's the illustration that he's making here is that you are so particular about these bits of minutia but you miss the bigger things and the bigger things of what justice and mercy and faithfulness Overemphasize the unimportant things, underemphasize the weightier matters. The third one, and we won't turn there because we pretty much know it, the Pharisees were great prayers, remember? There's the Pharisee in the temple, and he says, Lord, I am so grateful I am not like him, the tax collector. Okay, they were the dogs of society. He says, I'm so glad I'm not like him. I tithe, and I do all this, and I do all that, and and." Was there anybody else there to see him pray that way? Oh, you bet. Because that was one of their favorite things, is to make sure everybody saw how spiritual they were, how holy they were, okay? Psalms say that David's pillow was wet with the tears of his prayers. The Pharisees' pillows were dry, but the streets were wet with their tears because they like to go out in front of everybody and, and pray and weep and tear their clothes when they were in mourning and sit in sackcloth so everybody could see them. So that they had a, a, an image of being holy, an image of being righteous. They, very, they gained a very good reputation for being spiritual, but it was all show. It was all for show. Then let's turn over to John chapter 5. And the fourth thing that they were very good at, we've got evangelism, tithers, praying. Of course, they corrupted each of these. And they corrupted this last one as well. Is they were very good at what we would say reading their Bibles. They were very good at studying the Scripture. They were terrible at applying the Scripture, but they were very good at reading the Scripture. Chapter 5 of John, verse 39. They were very learned in the things of Scripture, but they missed the heart of it. They missed the meaning. Verse 39, you search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is these that bear witness to me. You are unwilling to come to me that you may have life. Okay? It would be like uh, oh, just this, uh, I, I don't know, you're a doctor, and you take out appendices, append, you take out people's appendix. And here's the, here is the, the way that you do it to get 
this operation and to be successful, here are all the steps to do it. And you read the steps and you go, no, that's not the way to do it. I'm going to do it this way because I like this way better. And Jesus is saying that the Old Testament clearly points to me. It clearly says all of these things. And in, in me, you will have eternal life. And the Pharisees are going, no, no, no. We've got to go on, on our own way. We're going to have eternal life our own way. And Jesus says, you read the scriptures, but you don't know what it says. You study the scriptures, you spend all this time diving in, but you don't know what it really means. So we have to ask ourselves, well, what's the purpose of my Bible study time? What's the purpose of my fellowship? Is it knowledge? Is it edification? Uh, are we just simply stashing it away? I mean, we might be the wisest person or the smartest person in the room, but if we're not wise, if we don't apply what we know, we're really not very smart at all especially when it comes to Scripture. You can know what it says, but if you don't live what it says, you don't really know what it says. Well, the Pharisees excelled all others in their diligence, in their devotion to these things, but their actions were all external. They were motions of piety just for show. Remember what the Lord said at the anointing of David back in 1 Samuel he said for the Lord does not see as man sees man looks at the outward appearance and the Lord looks at the heart okay we may be able to keep things secret but yet the Lord knows what goes on in our heart Proverbs 24 says does not he who weighs the heart consider it he who keeps your soul does he not know it and will he not render to each man according to his deeds Christian life that pleases God is both internal and external, okay? You can sit here and go, I've got this wonderful heart and not show it. I've got this, I've got, uh, I've got the, 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 I got the love, uh, what's the song? I got the joy, 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 joy down in my heart, okay? But, but nobody can see it. And you, you come, and, and I, I know we're good Presbyterians, and you, you can say, I got the joy, 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 joy down in my heart. It's down in my heart. Where? Down in my heart. It doesn't have to be out here. It's in here. Ugh. Okay? And you can be external like the Pharisees and do all these great things, but your heart can be rotten. The Christian life really is internal and it is external. Authentic righteousness keeps the spirit and the law. Keeps both of them. So what is the leaven of the Pharisees? Let's go back to Luke. Matthew, Mark, Luke. And, and as I said, this... Chapter 12 begins back, really the discussion begins in chapter 11 at verse 37. And I'm not going to read all of it to you. I'll just pick out the highlights here as we go through so that we understand the importance of verse 1 in chapter 12. We go back to chapter 11, verse 37. Now when he had spoken, a Pharisee asked him to have lunch with him. And he went in and reclined at the table. It was a, you know, it was a real honor and, and a sign of, of uh, uh, fellowship and community to go and, and eat with somebody. And when the Pharisees saw it, he was surprised that he had not first ceremonially washed before the meal. Now, you, you see the word ceremonially. This was not an issue of hygiene. This was issue of ceremony. The only problem, and, and the Pharisees wanted everybody who was righteous, to come in and ceremonially wash before a meal. The only problem was we don't find that listed 
in the Old Testament as something that you needed to do to be righteous. Okay, you could wash your hands and that was a good hygiene thing, but this was all about being righteous. And this is not taught in the Old Testament. This is one of those things that the Pharisees have added on to the Old Testament. The Pharisee was somewhat disappointed that Jesus, who said he was, you know, gave this air of righteousness, knew the Old Testament, he didn't do these things. Now, why did the Pharisees want to wash their hands before every meal? So they could be seen. Look, look at me, okay? I'm washing my hands before I eat. It was all about show. It was tradition here, not true holiness. Not true holiness. And the Pharisees kind of, they, they condemn Jesus for what he doesn't do. Look at verse 39. Well, for 38, when the Pharisees saw it, he was surprised that he had not first ceremonially washed before the meal. But the Lord said to him, now you Pharisee, clean the outside of the cup, and of the platter, but inside of you, you are full of robbery and wickedness. Okay, it's all shiny on the outside, but it's nasty on the inside. And Jesus uh, equates that with uh, the whitewashed tombs. They look all gleaming and white on the outside, but there's nothing but death on the inside. Okay, and this conversation begins to extend the rest of 11, and, and Jesus goes back, and he, he really... He lands on them, he gives more woe statements, uh, and, and, and really condemns them. And he says, basically, the religion that you are practicing is different from Judaism. Pharisees, what you practice is no longer Judaism. Almost 100 years ago, J. Gresham Machen said, liberalism is a different religion than Christianity. Okay, it is not the same. It is not the same, and that's what we are finding here. You know, Jesus says, you know the word, you're supposed to be experts in it, why don't you understand it? Why can't you live it? And he goes to chapter 12 here, and, and, and look what it says in verse 1. Under these circumstances, after so many thousands of the multitude had gathered together that they were stepping on one another. So Jesus comes out of this conversation from a lunch conversation with the Pharisees, and he comes out to this crowd, and, and literally there are so many that they're, they're pushing in, they're stepping on one another, and they're all ready to hear what Jesus has to say. And Jesus does what? He gives a great sermon. He turns to his disciples. He began saying to his disciples, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Everybody was waiting for what he was going to say. Why in the world does he gather his disciples and tell them of the danger of hypocrisy? Because they were just as apt to fall into it as the people he just left, as the Pharisees. The danger is for everybody across the board. He doesn't want his own disciples to be infected with that same spirit. Now, there are two particular marks of a hypocrite. There are probably more, but I just put two down. First, a hypocrite can be known by the fact that his speech and his actions are contrary to one another. His speech and his actions are contrary to one another. Jesus says, they say and they do not do. I can remember growing up playing golf with my dad, and he would say, you know, he'd, he'd set up the shot and tell me how to hit it, and then he'd put a ball down and hit it, and it would not go where he wanted it to go, and he'd say, Randy, do as I say, not as I do, okay? 
uh, that just doesn't work in the Christian life. I mean, it says, this is what I say, this is what I have to do, okay? If I say I love you, I have to act like I love you. Now, this is different from the struggle that Paul has in Romans chapter 7 where he says, well, I, I don't do what I know I'm supposed to do and I do what I know I'm not supposed to do. That's the struggle with sin within us and Paul hates sin. He says, who will deliver me from this body of death? The Pharisees, they like what they're doing and they think they're doing great. And Jesus says, no, you can't say one thing and purposely, habitually go and do another. So the second mark of a hypocrite is that whenever he does right, he does it so that others can see him do right. He does it so others can see him do right. Spurgeon says again, to him, virtue in the dark is almost a vice. He can never detect any beauty in virtue unless he has a thousand eyes to look upon him, and then virtue is something indeed. The true Christian, like the nightingale, sings in the night. But the hypocrite has all his songs in the day when he can be seen and heard by men. Did you see? I got a dime out in the parking lot. And do you see what I'm going to do? I'm going to put this penny in the, in, the, in the plate. Are you watching? That's what they want. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. Fermented, something fermented. I mean, this is how they did it. They took off a low, put it, took off a pinch, put it in the next loaf, and it impacted the entire batch of bread. He's saying their kind of religion infects everything that it touches. You can't have a baker who makes a loaf of bread, and this half of the loaf is leaven, and this half of the loaf is unleavened. Once the leaven gets in, it goes everywhere. Second John says, remember, if somebody comes to you with something else than the gospel, don't invite them into your house. Somebody comes and knocks on the door and says, hey, I'd like to, to tell you about the real religion. You don't invite them into your living room. If you want to talk to them and share the gospel with them, stay outside. That's just an illustration. Somebody comes here and uh, they better not. Uh, somebody comes here and preaches something other than the gospel. Don't shake their hand on the way out. Okay? Ask them point blank. What in the world do you think you were doing? Giving us that gobbledygook. We want to hear the gospel. This type of hypocrisy that he's talking about here cannot simply be contained in the heart of one person, especially when that person is a religious leader. This week I went and looked up way, there was way too easy to find the hypocrisy of religious leaders. How people in positions of authority, spiritual authority, went down the path and trashed their lives and how it affected the church. And, and, and I thought, well, I can't tell you about them because then the danger might be that you would think, well, I'm not like that, so I can't, I'm not that bad, so I must be okay. I mean, if that, that pastor did this, look, I'm not doing that. No, I, I thought hypocrisy is pretty widespread. And every life within a congregation that has some of that leaven affects everybody. And it is particularly bad with spiritual leaders. My spiritual life affects everybody's spiritual life. The spiritual lives of the elders affects everybody's spiritual life. 
Okay, if we're trash in our lives, eventually it's going to pass down into everybody else's life. That's the leaven of hypocrisy. Hypocrisy downplays sin. Oh, that's not a big deal. It begins to justify sin in our lives. And, and even sometimes we don't even notice it that it is sin anymore. Hypocrisy doesn't understand the pervasive nature of sin and how corrupting it can be beyond our own persons. The heart of hypocrisy really, for the believer, is idolatry. Because I love something more than the Lord. And I love something so much other than the Lord that I am willing to say one thing and have everybody think that I love the Lord and I'm worshiping, but yet in my heart I love this so much more that I'm willing to risk everything to go and participate in that. But you say, well, how do we stop this? How do we put an end to this? Well, gee, isn't it enough to educate people? Okay. Well, Randy, stealing cars is wrong, and sooner or later you're going to get caught. That's my favorite illustration, stealing cars. Or speeding, one or the other. Um, you know, but, but yeah, no, no, I'll never get caught. Okay, it's okay. I can go on and do this, and, and, and this is something I really love, and I think God created me to steal cars, so I, I'm good at it. Okay, but there is jail for those who get caught. Okay, you've stolen so many cars, Randy, that if you get caught, they're going to put you away forever. No, that doesn't really stop me from stealing cars. See, education alone won't stop somebody's heart who is set on sin. Okay, here are the consequences of sin. If you go and continue doing that, your life is going to go down, right down the tubes. Not enough to stop me from doing it. Not enough to stop me from doing it. In the 1800s, a Scottish Presbyterian minister named Thomas Chalmers preached in minister circles what is a famous ser- sermon called The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. In that sermon, he essentially says this. I'll try to sum it up here. You cannot get a desire, get at a desire, simply by warning against the consequences of pursuing that desire. You cannot root that desire, that illegal, illicit, immoral desire out of your soul simply by warning against the consequences of pursuing that illegal, immoral, ungodly desire. The only thing that can trump that desire is a greater, pure desire. There must be a new desire that is greater and better than the wrong desire. And this is what he calls, Thomas Chalmers calls, the expulsive power of a new affection. Affection is a desire of the heart. The new affection, the new desire comes in and it does what? It expels the old. It draws you to the new desire. This is a new, greater, pure desire. The control of the old desire begins to lessen. You can't just say, well, I love this one and I'm going to stop doing it. Your love must now be focused on something that is greater and better and pure, and that's where the gospel comes in. There is no idolatrous desire in your life if it's controlled by Christ. If your greatest desire in your life is Christ. His gospel is bigger, and it's it's marketing. It's bigger and better than anything else in the world, okay? When you begin to have a heart that desires Christ, that desires the fellowship of the Christian body that desires to grow in the things of Christ. The adulterous desires of the other things fade away. 
Now they'll never stop. They'll always be around, but they begin to fade and have less control over us. When you begin to want God more than anything else, your level of hypocrisy will diminish. Let's pray. Lord, sometimes we we wonder why you even fool with us. We don't deserve what you give us. So often we, we muck it up. But yet you have made a promise to us for those who are in Christ that we belong to you. That there is no power of anything that is created that can separate us from your love that is given to us through Christ Jesus. In the midst of our hypocrisy, in the midst of our idolatry, in the midst of our wandering away, in the midst of our stupidity, whatever it is, we rest in your hand and you're calling us and saying, don't go there. Fill your heart with me. Fill your mind with the things of Christ. And you care for us. And when we, like, like David in Psalm 51, come to our senses and, and confess our sin, you are gracious and you forgive. And in the midst of our struggles, you remind us that your grace is more than sufficient for what we face. Lord, these are not just sayings and platitudes. These are, these are things of reality. You are kind and caring and you love us more than we can imagine, even when we are hypocrites. Lord, come upon us. Show us the areas of our lives that need addressed. Show us the areas where we need to put aside things and, and to love you more, to know you more, to spend more time with you, that, that our sinful desires would be replaced with something greater and better the desire of Christ. For it's in his name that we pray. Amen.